0: Well, our reading comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 6 today, and that can be found on page 284 of the Bibles at the chairs, um, and it's also going to appear on the screen, and I'll read from uh, verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together today to worship you and to be ministered. Uh, by to by your Spirit, and we pray, Lord God, that as we spend time in this passage, uh, that you would give us a, a deeper appreciation of what it means to to know you, um, that our hearts would be full of awe and wonder at your beauty, that we would long to know you more, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I wonder if I could take a moment. Uh, and ask you, why are you here this morning? Now there may be all sorts of answers to that question. Maybe you be- you come because of the people. Maybe you appreciate some of the friendships that you have here. Uh, maybe you come because you think that you ought to. Uh, maybe you're on a rota and you couldn't get a swap. Uh, maybe you've come because you find it helpful as you look to live out your Christian life, or or maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're investigating Christianity and you just want to find out more, and that's great. There are various reasons why we might be here, uh, but there is a particular reason why we gather like this. Each Sunday, we begin our time together with a call to worship God, and that's because that's the primary reason that we gather. Uh, it's the reason that we come together to worship God. But what does that actually mean? What is worship? What does it do? Uh, the passage that we just looked at there, it comes from a section of First Kings that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 8. It makes up a pretty large chunk of the narrative of Solomon's reign. And that whole section from chapter 5 to chapter 8 is all about worship. Specifically, it's about the construction and the purpose of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon says in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So so God had given Solomon the task of building a house for his name. In other words, the temple was to bring glory to God. It would be a place of worship that would magnify God's character. And this whole section has some really helpful stuff to teach us about worship Stuff which ought to help us as we gather here Sunday by Sunday in a particular way, but also as we worship God in our day-to-day lives. Now, there's loads in these three chapters, but I just want to highlight a couple of things that will hopefully help us as we worship. And the first thing I want us to see is what the construction of the temple teaches us about who we worship. Now, I'm just going to read some sections that describe the temple's construction, and and if you can follow along, uh, that would be great. It probably won't appear on the screen because I haven't prompted anyone to put these verses on the screen, but if you want to follow along in one of these Bibles, uh, that would be great. So the first section I'm going to read is from verse 14 of chapter 6. So just after the bit that that I read a moment ago, uh, from verse 14 to verse 22. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Now, um, you get the idea that as we listen to that description, that no expense was spared. Now, cedarwood was premium stuff. This was no bargain basement in Ikea. This was the absolute best that could be got. But then notice it was all overlaid with pure gold. You know, in one sense, it wouldn't have mattered what quality of wood you had used if you were going to overlay it all with pure gold anyway. But Solomon used the absolute best of the best throughout the whole temple. And then we read on in verse 23, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall." their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So Solomon made these two huge angels, each over 15 feet high, and they stood in the inner sanctuary of the temple with their wingtips touching the wall and touching each other. And they were covered from head to toe in pure gold. Can you just imagine what that must have looked like, gazing up at these two awesome golden angels with their wings stretched out? And then we have all sorts of descriptions of incredible carvings on the walls as you read on through that chapter. We read in uh, verse 13, actually, of chapter 7, And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work of bronze. So Solomon brings in the 10th century BC equivalent of Michelangelo. And he gets to work making all these intricate bronze carvings of pomegranates, if you've ever cut open a pomegranate, uh, you know how beautiful they are, how detailed. And Hiram, he was carving hundreds of them. And if you go back to chapter 6, verse 7, this is another thing for us to, to notice about this whole construction. In verse 7 of chapter 6, we read, when the house was built... It was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now, when you stop and think about that for a moment, that's incredible, isn't it? If there's one thing you associate with a building site, it's noise. But this whole construction of this incredible building was done in complete Silence. No ear defenders at the temple site. Everything had to be prepared elsewhere and then brought on site so that there wasn't so much as the sound of a hammer hitting a nail as the temple was constructed. The temple was built with silent reverence to God. Just imagine the sight of it all, the the incredible expense of the pure gold, the awesome sight of these giant cherubim, the breathtaking beauty of the, the carvings, its silent construction. In fact, the first readers of this account were God's people living in exile years after these events took place. They'd been displaced from their land And the temple, by this point, had been destroyed. The description that we have in chapters 5 to 8 is the closest thing that they had to ever knowing what the temple looked like. The closest that they had come to getting a sense of how glorious it was. And as we take it all in, this whole description is meant to just make us stop and go, wow. If that is what the house for the Lord looks like, then how much more wonderful, how much more awesome, how much more beautiful, how much more incredible must God be? You see, the reality is is that we are all worshipers. We all worship something, and our problems, they stem from worshiping the wrong things. So many of our deepest struggles and anxieties, they come from a fear of loss, a fear that we might lose what's most precious to us. Whether that be our reputation or our health or our comfort. And the remedy to those fears is to redirect our worship on the only one who is truly worthy of it. The description of the temple is meant to draw our eyes to gaze upon the wonder of God, to meditate on his beauty his love for his people, his mercy and grace on his faithfulness. And the tremendous privilege that we have that those exiles didn't is that we don't look to a physical building, even one as impressive as Solomon's temple. We look to the true temple, the image of the invisible God, the one whom the prophet Isaiah says had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to Him. And yet, He was the most beautiful person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. As we meditate on the beauty of Christ's love, that He was willing to go to His death on a cross to pay the price for all the false gods that our hearts worship, it's as we do that, That we truly worship. And as we worship Him, we're drawn away from the cares that so easily entangle us and weigh us down. To worship is to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in His wonderful face till the things of earth grow strangely dim, in the light of His glory and grace. So the temple, by its very construction, causes us to stand in awe of the God that we worship. But why was it built? What was the purpose of the temple? Well, the answer to that question gives us another reason. To worship God? And it's an answer that we find in chapter 8. After the temple was com- completed, we read in verse 10 of chapter 8, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Uh, and those words, they, they echo words in the book of Exodus, Nearly five centuries before, as God's people wandered in the wilderness, God instructed Moses to build a tent of meeting called the tabernacle. It was a place where the people offered sacrifices to God to deal with their sin. And after the tabernacle was erected, we read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So just as God had been present in some way in the tabernacle all those years before, here he was filling the temple with his presence in some special way. But how do we make sense of that? You know, one of the first things that our children learn in our Explorers classes is the answer to the question, where is God? And the answer is everywhere. And that was something that Solomon knew all too well. He declares in verse 27 of chapter 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Solomon recognized that God could not be contained. So we might ask, what's the point then? What is the point of the temple? What's the point of building this this beautiful house for God if it can't contain him? Well, the answer is found as we read on in chapter 8. In verse 28, Solomon prays, "'Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant "'and to his plea, O Lord my God, "'listening to the cry and the prayer "'that your servant prays before you this day, "'that your eyes may be open night and day "'toward this house, "'the place of which you have said, "'My name shall be there, "'that you may listen to the prayer "'that your servant offers towards this place.'" And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Now, if you go up town to the National Museum of Scotland, you will find in there an ancient artifact. And it's called a telephone box. It's a cast iron booth with a door on it, and it is painted bright red. And it is a thing of beauty. And like some of you, I'm old enough to remember when those phone boxes were dotted around every town and village in our country. Back in the days, before smartphones existed, if you were out and about, and you needed to make a phone call, you stepped inside the booth, lifted the receiver, dialed the number, And when the little pips sounded, you popped your ten pence in. And I feel really nostalgic just thinking about that. And in a sense, that's about what the temple's like. The temple was a particular location where God had decided that he would listen to the prayers of his people. The tabernacle, it was primarily about sacrifices, But the temple wasn't so much about sacrifice, it was more about communication, like a big golden telephone box. And most of the prayers that the people prayed at the temple were prayers for forgiveness. Solomon, in his prayer in chapter 8, he asks God to hear the prayers of his people, and he outlines the kind of prayers that would be prayed and most of them are prayers that say, sorry. Verse 34, verse 36, verse 39, verse 45, verse 49, all prayers asking for forgiveness. And if you were to read through that section, what you'd notice is is that each prayer is being prayed further and further away from the temple. And each situation that Solomon describes seems to be worse than the one before, until Solomon envisages the worst possible scenario in verse 46 where the people rebel against God and are defeated by their enemies and are exiled from the land that God had promised them and are living in captivity. And he prays, verse 4 to eight, If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Imagine being one of those first readers and reading this. They were far away from the promised land, stuck in exile, living out this worst possible scenario. But even at their lowest point, when their lives were full of regret and shame, fear, and anxiety, when all hope seemed lost, they could still pray in the direction of the temple. They could still say sorry, and God would still hear them and forgive. Isn't that a wonderful picture? of God's mercy. I wonder if you've ever been in the situation where someone is so angry with you that they refuse to take your calls. When the lines of communication are closed, it's impossible for reconciliation to take place. But the God that Solomon worshipped, the God that we worship, he's opened up the way for us to speak to him. For Solomon and his people then, it was the temple, this beautiful building that would have taken the breath away. It declared to all who saw it that sin was serious. But it also declared that God was ready to listen to anyone who said sorry. Today, we don't need to go to a particular building or pray in a particular direction towards Jerusalem. And that's because in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the temple. In John's account of Jesus' life in chapter 2 verse 19, when the Jews asked him for a sign, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John explains that Jesus was speaking about his own body and what he would do on the cross when he died and rose again. In Jesus, God has given us a line of communication directly to him. Jesus is the true temple. He is the one who opens up the way for the Father to hear us as we pray. (coughs) Folks, if we want to know how serious our sin is and why we need to say sorry, then we only need to look at what Jesus, the true temple, did. How He was willing to suffer and die in our place. But we also need to understand that even when things get really, really bad, even when the worst happens, even when our sin fills us with tremendous guilt and shame, and we think that God could never possibly accept us, for anyone who's put their trust in Jesus, God never hangs up the phone that line of communication is always open for His beloved children. He hears our prayers and He forgives. What a wonderful God we have, a God who is worthy of all our worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have opened up the way for us to have a relationship with you through the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to go to the cross and bear our sin so that we might know that every time we pick up the phone, you answer. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers and we pray that today you would remind us of your grace and your love and your faithfulness to us in Christ. And as we come to this table now to take bread and wine, Lord, would we be refreshed again? Would our faith be strengthened as we remember what Christ has done on our behalf? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that we do regularly here is take time to remember Jesus' death by taking bread and wine together. The bread and wine represent a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples shortly before he died. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine, the blood that he shed. And as we come to this table today, it's a visible reminder to us of how serious our sin is that it took the death of the Lord Jesus to deal with it. But it's also a visible reminder to us that God hears us when we come to Him, when we call to Him, that Jesus has opened up the way for forgiveness and mercy to be possible. At that meal, Jesus took bread and He broke it, and He said to His disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take eat and remember me. He also took wine and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember me. Jesus called all who loved and followed him to share in this meal. And so here at Grace Church Leith, we invite all those who love and follow Jesus and have been baptized to come and take the bread and wine. If you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. And I just invite you to use this time to reflect on what we've just been looking at in this passage. It's a a passage that speaks of the, the wonder of God and how he deserves our worship. It tells us that God is ready to hear our prayers. He is ready on the other end of that phone to hear you today if you would come and receive Jesus so that you might have a relationship with the Father. The way we do this here, we're just going to stand and sing two songs. Anytime during those two songs, please feel free to step out to either one of the tables at the back and take the bread and wine. We're going to close our time together by singing nothing but the blood of Jesus and all people that on earth do dwell. (coughs) Well, let's, um, let's stand together, shall we, as we sing?